0: Part six of The Boy with the White Hair Written and Performed by Nick Thurston. In the wake of the Wothen's death, Eglos found himself with more questions than answers. He now knew that the monster called the Kundu was, in fact, one of the Shivara, a child born of the goddess Nawan, the night mother, and Ingar, the god of wrath. But what did it mean that it could move from shadow to shadow through the bridge of night? Did it reside somewhere in the mortal world, or somewhere within the Valsunga itself? Did it have a form? that could be injured by the weapons of men? And why had Hafnir stopped him from asking about the creature's mysterious motivations? Eglos was left to ponder these questions alone. Dunzineer's passing had caused quite a stir. When torches were brought into the hall, the wothen's body had been revealed to be horribly misshapen. Bristles like those of a hog had grown from his back, and his enormous, lantern-like eyes continued to glow even after his death. His teeth had turned to fangs. None of the shield-bearers had been willing to touch him. In the end, it was Hrovak, the master of the guard, who had dragged the body out to the courtyard and burned it. As flames devoured the pitch-soaked faggots of wood, Provac raised an eyebrow at Egloss From the other side of the blaze, Yellowmane stared at him through leaping tongues of fire. Egloss wondered what he had gotten himself into. It wasn't long before the Kundu struck again. Two days after Dunzineer's death... A messenger arrived from Vindholm. Three men cried the messenger, slumping from the saddle of his blown horse. In broad daylight! God save us. Thundering from the castle gates on his Falsha, Eglos was there in hours. When he arrived, the grim faced village headman explained what had happened. Three ice fishermen Returning with their catch had been ambushed on the road which led up from the lake. Villagers had come running to the sound of screaming, but by the time they arrived, all was quiet, and the snow was soaked with blood. They hadn't stayed long enough to see what had done it. Show me where it happened, said Eglos. The headman pointed towards the lake. Eglas strung his bow and rode down the slope. Doradrun's footsteps crunched loudly as they made their way down the frosty road. No birds sang. A white haze was collecting in the fir trees to either side, adding to the silence and stillness. Besides the Falsha's hooves, the only sounds were the thump of settling snowdrifts, and the creaking of wood from among the trunks. It was difficult to see where any sound came from. Doradroon's ears twitched, and Egloss's eyes darted restlessly from shadow to shadow. They came to a long and narrow part of the road. Ahead, it opened outwards to reveal the long, flat plain of the frozen lake. Eglas signaled the Falsha to stop. He looked left and right. On either side rose banks of snow, on whose shoulders appeared the feathered green limbs of more trees. They emerged as if trunkless from the fog. Thanks to the slopes, the trees seemed to be floating in midair. The words of the Wothen returned to Eglas' mind. It lies in wait, in a lonesome, out-of-the-way place where men come to walk on water and trees float in the sky. Not far ahead, there were a number of dark shapes on the ground. Eglas swung himself from the south. Two of the fishermen were scarcely recognizable as men. Their bodies had been separated into pieces, like meat from a butchered ox. They lay scattered about a wide area in patches of red snow. Egloss made the sign of Malagorn's pole over them. But where was the third man? As Eglas began searching for clues, Dorodrun whinnied nervously. Eglos turned. The Falsha was looking skywards at three black shapes orbiting just beneath the clouds. They looked like enormous ravens with the bodies of men. They were cadres drawn down from the peaks of the Sarndholm by the scent of fresh corpses. Egloss would have to hurry. A low groan came from the nearby woods, Egloss climbed the bank and saw a trail of blood leading to a small clearing. He knocked an arrow to his bow and went in among the trees, scanning the shadows to either side. The man in the clearing was pale and barely moving. His guts lay open and steaming and a great deal of blood had already soaked into the snow around him. A bone-tipped ice-fishing spear lay off to one side, also covered in blood. eggloss looked closer. The blood was darker than human blood. So, eggloss thought to himself, it can bleed. eggloss knelt beside the dying man and took his hand. It was cold. The fisherman's eyes fluttered open, and at first he seemed uncertain of where he was. Then everything seemed to come flooding back to him at once. He started panting and tried to raise himself. Easy, friend, said Eglas. Have no fear, for your suffering has almost come to an end. You are about to pass through the Viersee, and I will remain here with you until you have gone. Save your strength. You will need it when you reach the Middle World. This seemed to offer the man some peace. He nodded, almost imperceptibly. Tell me, said Eglas. The creature that did this to you, where did it go? The fisherman grimaced in pain and held out a trembling hand. There, he gasped. He was pointing west, out over the lake, towards the blue peaks in the distance. There! The man was pointing towards the Halodrake. A sudden shrieking squawk came from above the clearing. Egloss spun just in time to see a dark shape crashing in through the trees. The Cadruth sped towards him, its talons stretched out in front of it. Eglas leapt out of the way, dodging the Cadruth's grasping feet. But as it passed him, a streak of searing pain raced up his back, and he felt hot blood spill out from beneath his jerkin. The codruth landed awkwardly at the edge of the clearing and turned, flapping to face him. He'd never seen one up close before. Its head was like that of a raven, except that its face was nothing more than exposed bone. A pair of massive, coal-black wings stretched out from its shoulders. Its legs also were bird-like, bent backwards at the knee and ending in long, dark-gray talons. But its torso... And the arms which stretched in Egloss's direction were like those of an emaciated human, stringy and elongated, and with fingers that ended in razor-sharp claws. Blood dripped from one of its hands where it had slashed him. Around the Cadruth's neck hung a sort of necklace, a cord of sinew strung with golden beads. These, Egloss knew, were beard rings, got from the corpse of some long-dead chieftain upon whom the Khadruth had once feasted, when it was still just a raven. Gaining its footing on the snow, the Khadruth beat its wings and croaked at Eglos. He shot it twice in the chest in rapid succession. It fell to the ground, writhing, and rolled over. Eglos sprang across the clearing, drawing the long knife he wore crosswise at the back of his belt. He grabbed the sinew necklace and pulled the kadruth's head up, then slit its throat. The blood that sprayed out on the snow was almost black. Behind him, Dorodru screamed. <coughs> Eglas leapt up and ran as fast as he could towards the road. Reaching the high bank, he saw Dorodroon facing one of the other cadres, standing on his hind legs and kicking at it with his hooves. The third cadre had landed on the Falsha's back and was tearing at his flanks with its talons, Ribbons of bright red blood spattered on the snow. Steadying his breath, Aeglos knocked an arrow, drew it back to his cheek, and let fly. The cadruth on Dorodrun's back was knocked off by the shot. It crumpled to the ground with its wings beneath it. Free of his burden, Dorodrun surged forward and caught the last caudruth with a blow of his crescent-shaped hoof. The sharp outer edge cut the monster a terrible gash and crushed the primary bone of its wing. Tawdruf tried to get away, but the enraged Volsha would not allow him. Stamping forward, he trampled the scrambling birdman into a mess of bloody black feathers. When Eglas returned to the castle that evening, he found it nearly empty. Thane Hafnir and the Lady Esenaya had gone to the Barrow Hills to perform rituals. Eglos sent for the healer and went to wait in his room. The room was high in one of the towers and had a window facing out upon the plain. He was there, shirtless and steadying his breath, when a gentle knock came at the door. Come in, he said through gritted teeth. Frirla stepped into the room. "'My lady, I expected the healer.' "'And here she is,' said Frirla. "'Now lean forward.' "'Eglas did as he was told, and allowed Frirla to inspect his wounds. "'The Codrith had torn three long rents in his back. "'She washed them with salts of nescat, "'which would prevent the grave rot which could come from being wounded by one of the raven men.' and used needle and thread to close the wounds. Egloss did his best not to wince. But when she sank the needle at an especially painful angle, he couldn't help crying out. When this happened, she placed a palm flat over the spot, pressed on it, and shushed him gently. It was the same way Egloss would have calmed an injured animal. Her tenderness surprised him, for it made him feel safe. When she was finished, Frirla applied a poultice and wrapped his torso with clean linen bandages. There, she said, standing back and admiring her work. You're good as new. Try not to move too quickly, or you'll break the stitching. Eglas smiled awkwardly. I'll do as you say. "'Good,' she said. "'She was bent slightly before him. "'He could taste her breath as she exhaled, "'and it made him feel drunk. "'He longed to take her face in his hands, "'to kiss her full lips. "'Throughout the time he'd spent as a guest in the castle, "'he had barely seen the princess. "'She kept mostly to herself "'and was fiercely independent.' She also had a tendency to ignore her father's rules against going out into the countryside on her own. Despite the danger posed by the Kundu, she often left the castle on her own tawny falsha. She went to visit the villages along the valley's rim, bringing them medicine and golden pears, which they grew in the greenhouse of the castle and which could heal many of the ailments brought on by malnutrition. Eglas had often seen her from this very same room, riding through the snow with her fur-lined cloak bound up tightly, her golden hair blowing behind her. His heart had sailed at the thought of riding alongside her. Now here she was, right in front of him. He drew a deep breath and tried to still his heart. Her perfume smelled of lilac. "'Jasmine, and Magnolia. "'This will take longer to heal than a normal wound,' said Freyla. "'The claws of the quadrith cut deep and injure more than the flesh. "'I will come again.' "'She left the room. "'He listened to her footsteps fade away in the hall. "'When they were gone, he lay back on the bed and stared at the ceiling.' The next day, she came again, and the next, and the next. She bathed his wounds with salts of nescat and changed his dressings. They didn't talk much. Both were shy and awkward with their words. But she came, nevertheless, and his heart yearned each day for her return. When he was well enough to go forth from the castle again, he worried that she would not visit him anymore. And to his sorrow, he rode three times from the city gates and returned without seeing her. But on the fourth day, he rode out into a howling storm, and soon after his return, there came a familiar knock at his chamber door. It was Freela. I've brought this from the kitchen, she said, holding a tray out before her. On it was a bottle of wine and a steaming small pie. A man out in this weather must burn fuel like a furnace to keep warm. I guessed you would be hungry. I am, my lady, he said. Then, daring to look her in the eye, he added in a voice he hoped would not entirely tip his hand. More than I can say. Frirla narrowed her gaze as if wondering whether he was having a go at her. But she did not leave. Instead, with a smile lingering at the corner of her lips that seemed to say she was up for the game, she said, "'I guess you'd better eat your fill then, hadn't you? "'I'd hate to leave you unsatisfied.' "'If that is true,' said Eglas, "'then sit with me a while, "'for nothing would satisfy me so much.' as an hour in your company. It was the first time they really talked. At first, the conversation was stilted. Eglas did not know what sort of woman the princess was, and so he spoke to her as he'd learned to speak with other women he had known. He asked her questions about weaving. Festivals come and gone— and what sorts of clothing the nobles of Oathgard preferred these days. He let little bits of flattery drop. But Eglas soon discovered that this wouldn't do. Frirla made it clear from the first that flattery was no way into her good graces, and she rolled her eyes at his idiotic questions regarding looms and trends in courtly style. She cared nothing For the intricacies of warp and weft, and despised those who were overly concerned with how their choices of dress might be received by others. What Frirla wanted to talk about was the hunt. She wanted to know about the caudrous. She wanted to know just how he had trained his falsha for hunting and for battle. And the specificity of her questions made it clear she was no stranger to the arts of horsemanship. She wanted to handle Egloss’s bow. He removed it from its oilcloth and gave it to her. And when he described how he had been given it by Hargo, chief of the centaurs who lived in the Unteen Crest, she listened wide-eyed with wonder and asked a hundred things. But when Eglos turned the conversation in the princess's direction, she suddenly became shy. She didn't seem to think she had much to share. For although she revealed that her personal heroes were all well-traveled adventurers, she herself had never been out of Evenhold. She was, he discovered, embarrassed by her lack of worldly knowledge. "'Why,' said Eglas, "'It's nothing to be ashamed of. "'Most people fall into their graves "'without ever going more than three leagues from their front door. "'But that life isn't for everyone. "'If you like, when all this is over, we can travel together. "'I'll take you anywhere you want.' "'Her eyes lit up with such childlike, unguarded joy "'that Eglas couldn't help but laugh. "'It was no laugh of condescension.' He was delighted by her excitement. You would, she said. Why not, said Eglas. I'll take you to see the seven-stone bridge of Dwynaford, which was made by the giants of old, you know. We can go north to Banierhold and climb great Narfendul, whose branches are so high the clouds nest in them. Or we can go to the eaves of the Dolorake to meet the riders of the Mora. They ride great red foxes, the size of horses, called shaunucks, and. But I'm getting a hold of myself. There is so much to see. Then, with a meaningful look at the princess, he added. And in such company, the leagues would pass all too quickly. The days went by, and Eglas and Friarla met often in the little room, high in the castle tower. Whenever Eglas returned to Othgard, he would go straight to his chambers. He would stoke the fire, even to the point of making the room uncomfortably warm, for he knew that as soon as the princess saw smoke rising from the tower chimney, she would come to him. Then they would sit together and talk of many things, and both of them would feel warm and happy. And all the world beyond the window could go ahead and do whatever it liked. He told her of his life spent out of doors, in the forests and on the plains, always beneath the open sky. She told him of her own adventures, her pastimes and pursuits, and eventually of her deepest dreams and desires. It soon became clear that they had much in common. They shared ambition. They shared a restless desire to wander and to see all that the great earth had to show them. They shared a competitive nature that drove them to excel and which added a subtle friction to their conversation that was intoxicating to both of them. Throughout this time, Eglos made frequent journeys from Othgard in search of the Kundu. Whenever a new attack was reported, he raced to the scene. He tried everything he could think of to track the beast to its lair. Yet at every turn, he met with failure. One night, Egloss returned hollow-eyed after having been lost for three days in the devious downs of the northern reach. By this time, he'd made friends of the servants, the butler, and most of the shield-bearers besides Yellowmane. All of them were greatly relieved to see him in one piece. But none were so glad as Frirla. She rushed towards him and, ignoring the startled looks of her mother and father, threw her arms around his wet body. I thought you were dead, she cried. Not dead, he said wearily, only lost. The next day, Frirla came to the room in the tower, bearing a present, wrapped up in a long tube of oilcloth. What is this? he asked, turning it over in his hands. She smiled shyly. Open it and find out. Eglas opened the parcel and withdrew a precise, detailed map of the hold. Now, she said to him, you shall never be lost again. Egloss spread the smooth vellum out on the table. It was covered with elegant calligraphy, colored drawings, and notes on distance and times of travel. How does it work? he asked. She laughed, but seeing that this embarrassed him, she hurriedly added, I'll show you. He smiled at her and shook his head. "'I don't know how to thank you,' he said. "'Free us from this monster,' she said. "'And when everything is at peace again, come back to me and make good on your promises.' "'They locked eyes, and each saw the future there. "'He rose and went to her. "'She made as if to turn away, for his look was full of a settled intention,' that made her heart race and her hands tremble. Was she afraid? She couldn't tell. She'd never felt like this before. But when his hands encircled her waist, the feeling was so intoxicating that she let go of her resistance. She allowed herself to be drawn towards him. She felt as if she were the ocean and he the moon's and that his draw was impossible to resist. Then she recalled that she, too, had a draw that was impossible to resist, and she pulled him towards herself. Agloss let out a little gasp. Then both of them looked at one another and laughed. But it was not real laughter, only anxious laughter, for they had already entered that twilight of love-making that comes before the act itself. A sudden urgency entered the room. The tension burst, and they could no longer control themselves. His hand flew to her neck. Hers flew to his cheek. Each pulled the other's face close. For weeks now, they had been starving for one another's lips and with the subtle barrier of propriety broken, they made no more effort to conceal their desire. Their lips met at last. Both found the others hot, soft, and eager. Their mouths opened. Their tongues sought one another, playing and struggling in a delirious game. Agloss broke away and began to kiss her cheek, then under her jaw, then down her neck. Frirla moaned and pawed at him. With a single, sharp jerk, he tore open the top of her dress. Her breasts burst free. She gasped as the air touched her nipples, and he groaned as he watched them harden. He was beside himself now, panting with desire at the sight of her naked skin in the firelight. Her breasts heave with each breath she took. But before he could take her nipple in his mouth, she plunged her fingers through the laces of his leather jerkin and wrenched it open. Then, paying him back in kind for her dress, Frirla yanked on the collar of his shirt and tore it straight down the middle. "'We shall leave them there, I think.' Their desire for one another, I hope, has by now been made obvious, and what happened next need not be described in full. Suffice it to say, they became lovers in every sense of the word.